deep the Father's love for us. We are going to step into that this morning, these truths. We've been talking the last several weeks about the power of God against the enemies of darkness that set themselves up against that love. Uh, this morning, we, we dive back into the story. Uh, we've been talking about it in terms of believing and belonging. As we come to the Passover, chapters 11 and chapter 12 of Exodus, this is so central to understanding who we are as God's people. Certainly for the Old Testament, this was their narrative. This was the thing that uh, sort of shaped their entire lives. Uh, but as we move forward into the totality of Scripture, we just see the wonderful triple strands of the lamb, the blood, the firstborn, and what it all means for us. To start our scripture reading this morning, I want to dive back in or dip back in in chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And then over to chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go away from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask. Every man his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, presumably to Pharaoh in his hearing, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, uh, such as there has never been nor ever will be again, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all of these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then we come to chapter 12. In the first uh, 20 verses of, of chapter 12, you have very detailed instructions about the Passover, the selecting of the lamb, when to kill it, uh, the, the pointed, putting of the blood on the doorpost. You have instructions uh, about the uh, feast of the unleavened bread. Now we pick it up in verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. Touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you 
shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you, for your sons, forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children shall say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads, and they worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn, the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Father, these are great words. These are terrible words in so many ways. We pray that as we open your word now that you would give us an understanding of who you are, of how you operate in the world, where we stand, uh, of the uh, blessing that comes to your people through your work. Father, we pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I want to start uh, maybe a little bit vulnerable with you this morning. Uh, I do that for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, good reminder to pray for your pastors and your elders. Uh, we, we don't have any special dispensation of free from life's troubles uh, because we serve in a particular way. Uh, second, you know, I share what I'm about to share because I also know that many of you can enter in at exactly the same point and, and I've been encouraged in my own struggles by uh, your uh, sharing with me of your own and we pray together on these things but third and ultimately I wouldn't share this un unless I felt it would help us uh, in understanding and approaching this text. Many of you know that uh, we have a, a couple of sons who struggle. Uh, they, they struggle very deeply. Uh, have, uh, we, we grieve for them. We pray for them. Uh, they're in slavery in, in so many ways. Um, I see it in, in both their, their own life circumstances, how things have played out for them. I also see it in the choices that, that they have made. And... Uh, they, they struggle. This week was a, was a tough week for us 
uh, with, with one of our sons in particular. Like I said, I know that many of you can relate to it. What strikes me is the heart of a father, and, and I'm a very imperfect father, uh, the heart of a father who, who struggles when their sons are in slavery. The heart of a father who would do anything that he could to move heaven and earth, to, to see their sons released, to see their sons walking in delight, to, to see their sons knowing and experiencing uh, the, the love of God, the way that they were created to experience it. I, I don't have the ability to do that for my sons, but God does. And, and as we understand, as we approach, maybe I guess is a better word, as we approach this passage, we, we have to have some sort of prism to understand it because it is a, a, a terrible passage. Uh, it, it is full of terror. I mean, when we read that all of the firstborn of a nation, the most powerful nation in the world, the firstborn from the house of Pharaoh down to the handmaiden in the mill to the very cattle in the field is exterminated, we, we tremble or we are fools uh, to, to realize the, the power and the terror that is tied up with, with who God is. But really to understand it, we have to understand it from the point of view of a father, a parent, who would do anything to free their children from slavery, both the slavery that is imposed by others as well as the slavery that is self-imposed. And so we start with the heart of a father. Uh, Exodus chapter 4, 22 and 23 reminds us at the very beginning that that's what this is about. Israel is my firstborn son. And if you do not let my firstborn son go, I will kill your firstborn son. That's the message that Moses was to take to Pharaoh. That's the context of all of this. Uh, you see the heart of a father who will go to heaven, go to any lengths to rescue his child, his son, uh, who has undergone harsh slavery at the hands of, a at the hands of an oppressor. Uh, the slavery that has kept them down. And it's not just any son, it's his firstborn son. Now here's where we have to suspend time and space uh, in order to really understand this. We, we, we just have a difficult time understanding the importance of the theme of the firstborn that runs throughout scriptures because we are just such an intensely individualistic culture, and it really limits our ability to understand this. Here's the importance of the firstborn. It's not just that, hey, I wasn't a father before, and now all of a sudden this child comes into my life, and, and I'm a father, and firstborn, they're important. No. You have to think more Eastern. You have to think collective. The firstborn was the symbol 
of all of the family. Uh, the firstborn stood for the family. There was shame, there was honor, all tied up with the firstborn. So, for instance, when God came to Abraham and said, take your son Isaac uh, and sacrifice him, the big obstacle for Abraham there was not that God was demanding the life of a child. The big obstacle for Abraham was the fact that this was something that was reflecting on his whole family. If the firstborn dies, that means that our family is stained. If the firstborn needs to die, it means our family is stained. Uh, on, in the contrast, uh, you know, the firstborn who is noble, the firstborn who is stewardly, brings honor to the family. Uh, they, they, bring, they bring glory, they bring all of that. So when, when we see this theme of firstborn that is running through, it very much has to do with uh, this collective, collective understanding of who we are. Now, we're going to come back to this and see what that means for us as we are in the firstborn. Right? We, we are in Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn of all creation. He represents us as our family. But we have to, we have to put aside our, our individualism in order to really understand. It's very difficult for us to do because we just don't live that way. So we have the heart of a father who intensely loves his son and who will do everything that he can to retain the honor of his family as he rescues the firstborn son. Now, more detail, let's go to the heat of the father. You saw in verse 8 of chapter 10, Moses went into Pharaoh, he told Pharaoh what had happened, he told Pharaoh what he'd been telling Pharaoh all along now for several chapters he's been going into Pharaoh he's been giving him opportunities been giving him warning and Pharaoh won't listen he half-heartedly obeys he reneges on the things that he says and Moses goes out it says in verse 8 in hot anger in that sense you know Moses is a picture uh, of God's attitude towards sin you know God is not ambivalent towards rebellion God God hates it uh, he is heated, righteously so, against the tyranny of those who oppress his children, his firstborn son. We certainly see that in terms of Pharaoh. Pharaoh has been a tyrant from the beginning. Pharaoh is the one who has enslaved an entire nation. Pharaoh is the one who has caused them to make these bricks and took away their straw and beat them and made them make bricks without straw. Pharaoh was the one who ordered all the children, the male children of the Israelites to be killed. Uh, he ordered that. He executed that. Their blood flowed because of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is guilty. Pharaoh is a tyrant. Pharaoh is an oppressor. He has had opportunity after opportunity uh, to change his heart, but opportunity after opportunity passed and he hardened his heart. And, and God knew that. God knew that Pharaoh was going to stand as a marker to his 
power, God's power. He knew uh, he used Pharaoh in that way to stand as a marker to his power. Now there is a mystery there. We've talked about this. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We even see that a little bit here at the end of chapter 10. Uh, Which is it? How can it be all three? This is where we press up against a mystery. You know, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And we say, yes, Uh, it is both. Uh, God is using Pharaoh, like he says in Romans 9, as an instrument of wrath. As one who stands out, as one who God is making an example of. But that does not mean that Pharaoh is innocent. And that does not mean that that Pharaoh is helpless in this whole thing. He goes complicitly into his own destruction. Like Bryant reminded us, C.S. Lewis, last week in, in talking about eternal judgment, there are two types of people. Those of us who say to God, thy will be done, and those of us who God will say, thy will be done. Uh, Those are the only two types of people in this world. And Pharaoh is in the latter camp. It is his will, it is his decisions, it is his action that lead toward the tyranny of God's people. And and it was oppressive, it was slavery. Uh, It was was, uh, dehumanizing in the way that it affected God's people. And God said... I will deliver them. Now, again, I know that this is troubling. We think about the vengeance that God wrought upon Pharaoh. Some of you are familiar with Miroslav Volf, uh, theologian, uh, part of the Serb-Croat situation, which is a kind way of saying bloodbath, uh, that that took place uh, several decades ago. Uh, and, and, and he very wisely says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not step in to make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. Uh, he, he, he doubles down on this idea that God is wrathful against violence and against injustice, and that's right. We actually expect that out of God. We, we in, intuitively know this when, when we hear about a monster, uh, a Hitler, a Stalin, or a, a child abuser. We want justice for those people. A- and yet, you know, we, we still struggle at this. He goes on to say, the only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that God be the arbiter of legitimate violence that comes from him. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance, uh, but this will be unpopular with many in the West. He goes on and he says, part of the problem in the West, or part of the obstacle of the West, is that from the quiet of a suburban home, we have the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence uh, results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land, now he's talking about his own land, uh, soaked in the blood of the innocents, 
this thesis will invariably die along with many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying we intrinsically know that we long for God's justice to come into the world. And, and, and if we don't, it may be because we haven't reckoned enough with injustice. We, we haven't really seen the ugliness uh, of injustice and how it is an affront to an just God. We, we have misunderstood mercy because we haven't put it together with justice. And these things always hang together with God. Justice and mercy. And, and this is why what happens to Pharaoh, what happens to the land of Egypt, because this is another obstacle. Uh, we, we struggle with the fact that Pharaoh refused, but what about all of these other Egyptians? Well, listen, they were complicit in this society. They, they enjoyed the benefits of having an enslaved people underneath them. They enjoyed the wealth. They enjoyed all of these things. They weren't exactly freedom fighters. Uh, they were complicit in that. And as such, they too were right recipients of God's justice. But here's the second thing that I want you to consider. And this is where we begin to look at this plague a little bit differently than we've seen uh, the previous plagues. In plagues 4 through 9, there was a distinction made between Israel and Egypt. Uh, the, the flies, the darkness, the locusts, all of these things were happening on the Egyptian land but they weren't happening in the land of Goshen. They weren't happening where the Israelites let, uh, lived. So what is it that the Israelites had to do in order to avoid that plague? Nothing. They, they just, where they lived, you know, God, there was nothing that they had to do to avoid that plague. As we said, you know, God's contest was with the gods of Egypt. Uh, and, and, and Israelites had to do nothing to avoid that plague. It's different, though, in the 10th plague, isn't it? You know, here the Israelites, uh, or let me put it this way, here the destroyer, as it says uh, in chapter 12, verse 23, is going to go throughout all the land of Egypt, including the land of Goshen. The destroyer is going to come and he is going to destroy the firstborn of all homes that do not have the blood of the lamb on the lintel. There is no distinction in the 10th plague between Egypt and Israel without the intervention of blood. There is a distinction, as we see, and Moses tells Pharaoh in chapter 10, you'll see the distinction, but there's no distinction without blood. All are guilty. And this is really the second thing that we recognize under the heat of the Father. Not only is it against tyrants uh, like Pharaoh that, that blood is demanded, the blood of the firstborn, but it is also against God's people that his wrath comes. God's people aren't his people because they are good. God's people are in Egypt. They're worshiping idols. 
We know this. We know this from how do they go immediately when they turn back in, in chapter 32. I mean, they're, they're building Hathor. They're bringing out the Egyptian gods and saying, we want to worship Yahweh through these Egyptian gods. Uh, we know that from Joshua 24 where it says, you know, you have to throw away the gods that you worshipped across the river Euphrates. Abraham was an idol worshiper. The gods that you worshipped in Egypt, the Israelites in Egypt, Egypt were idol worshipers. We, we know that from their murmuring. They, they longed for the meat pots of Egypt. In chapter 16, verse 3, soon as they get a little hungry in the desert, oh, that we were back in Egypt where we sat by the meat pots and we had bread to fill. There was a sense in which their slavery was not only afflicted or inflicted by Pharaoh, but it was a welcome slavery where they had accommodated themselves to the gods of the land, where they were making choices uh, that was very difficult for them to leave the meat pots that were full and the bread that was abundant. God's action was not only to deliver them from the hand of Pharaoh, but God's action was to deliver them from themselves. To deliver them from the, their own infliction of slavery. And, and here's where I look inside and I say, woe is me. Because if there is not a picture of my own heart, that is it. I, I can look around and I can point the finger at all sorts of things in the culture. But if I really want to understand my need before God. It's not looking out there. It's looking in here. Because I love my slavery. I long for it. And God takes me out and leads me in a better place. And I say, oh, man, I wish I had those meat pots back in Egypt. Can we just make Hathor again so that I can put him together with Yahweh and somehow syncretize my way through life. But God says it, it won't do. It, it won't do. You need rescue. And, and this is how Yahweh comes to each one of us today. And he says, you need rescue. And, and I have the way. It is going to demand blood. But I am going to in my love for you as my children, I am going to give you the way out. I am going to give you the blood. And here we come to the Passover, a lamb. You can take it either from the sheep or from the goats. But you're to take a lamb without blemish or defect, and you're to set it aside. You're going to take it on the 10th day of the month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, all of Israel is going to go out and they're going to kill that lamb. Can you imagine that? I mean, some estimates say there are a million to two million Israelites. How many households is that? Uh, you know, we got 800,000 households all killing a lamb at twilight on the same day. What a bloody, bloody scene. What a bleating in the ears. How, you know, we, 
we sanitize this. We, we don't have our, our full sensual engagement with this. But what a scene that must have been on the 14th day of the month as the lambs were bleeding and the blood was flowing and they were taking the hyssop branches and they were dipping them in the blood and they were pointing them, painting it on the lintel, the doorposts around because the destroyer in righteous wrath against rebellion of people was coming through the land. And it was only if the destroyer saw the blood on the doorpost that he would pass over, pass over the house and it would be spared. I'm a firstborn son. I would have been very frightened that night. What, what is happening? Can you imagine the tension in the house? You know, God said, don't go outside. There's no way I'm going outside. But the tension inside the house for a parent, uh, for the child, you know, this blood of a lamb. And, and, and following morning, if, if you're alive, you know that it's only because the lamb died that you are alive. It is only because somebody took your place. Either a lamb died in the household or a child died. That's simply the way it was. It was one or the other. But this is the beauty of the healing that God brings to his people because we are enslaved both from without and from within. And he knows that it is only the substitution of a lamb without blemish or defect. It is only the blood that will allow the, the wrath of God, the destroyer, to pass over the house. It is only the substitution of a firstborn that will bring the rights of inheritance to the firstborn of his people, the church. This is who the Lord Jesus Christ is. All of these themes, the lamb, the blood, the firstborn, come together in Jesus Christ. When he goes to the cross, he goes as the, as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As he hangs there and as he is anointed with the hyssop, with the sour wine uh, that will not dead the pain, that will not staunch the flow of blood. It is the flow of blood that causes the wrath of God to pass over the judgment that you deserve, that I deserve. As he rises from the dead, the firstborn of all creation, we are brought into that train. And we are given all the rights of inheritance because, not because of what we have done. Again, banish the individualism. But because of what Jesus has done, we are brought into this story. Brothers and sisters, you have a father who loves you. 
He is passionate about you. He is crazy about you. He sees your slavery, both from without and from within. And he says, I will move heaven and earth in order to set them free. I will sacrifice my firstborn son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe on him will not perish but have everlasting life. He brings healing to you and to me. He rescues us through the blood of Jesus Christ, the lamb without blemish or defect. And you know what? It sets us in a whole new story to believe and belong. Do you believe that? Do you believe that it's not your merit, it's not your demerits that finally determine who you are? It's, it's your relationship to Jesus. It's your acceptance of the Lamb. Behold the Lamb, John says. And, and that is what is going to make a difference in your life. If you want to know more about that, I'd be happy to talk to you about that. Uh, others around you in the row would be happy to talk to you about that. It's your relationship to the Lamb that determines whether the Lord passes over the lintel of your heart. But the second thing is, he places us in a family. Now some of this I didn't print as much. Chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. God says, once you are redeemed once you are rescued now you're part of a bigger story now you're part of a story that we are going to carefully play out it's it's interesting here how in this 10th plague it becomes very liturgical uh, the the feast of passover the feast of unleavened bread uh, because we're in a story it's not our story as an American individual, but it's the story of God's people. And God says, I want you to remember it. You know, it will be a memorial for you, 12 verse 14. When your children say to you, what does this mean, 12 26, you are to rehearse the story with them. And I'm standing here before the table, and God says, this is the story. This is the story that you are in. It's a story of those who were lost but have been found. It's the story of those who were enslaved but have been rescued. It's the story that we are to uh, find ourselves in through faith. It's the story that we are to passionately pass on to our children. You know, each and every day, there are so many images and so many stories that come across our news feeds, that come across uh, our eyesight as we're driving, and they're all trying to make us part of a different story, trying to make us a story of progressivism and, and Western dominance and, you know, affluence, everything else. <coughs> but the story of all stories is right here. You were lost, and now you've been found. You were enslaved, but now you've been rescued. If I could, I'd move heaven and earth to rescue my son. Praise be to God.
that we have a Father who has done that same thing for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word and for how it reminds us of the story that we are in. We pray now that you would continue to teach us what it means. Make us living sacrifices unto you.